Let's pray together. Lord, we do draw near to you with confidence, not because of any goodness in ourselves, but because of the transforming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for your mercy and your grace. We see the sin in our own hearts, the sin in our lives, and the sin in this world. And we marvel at your mercy in forgiving and saving us. We pray that you would appear to us in glory this morning. That we would see with the eyes of our hearts how magnificent and majestic, how beautiful and glorious you really are. We ask that you would do that transforming work in our hearts through your word and through the worship of your people, that you would be glorified and that we would be blessed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We want to welcome you this morning. We're glad that you've joined with us this morning. I want to say a special welcome to those of you joining us on the live stream, as well of, as, well as uh, many of you who are back here in person for the first time. We had a big jump this week, and it's so exciting even to see your names, to see some of your faces. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. If you haven't already, now's a good time to silence your cell phones. It's easy to forget when you walk into the gym just because you're not used to it. I want to direct your attention to the bulletin itself this morning. Not what's in it, but the bulletin. It's new. Uh, We've been working on a redesigned bulletin. There's a new tear-off, just a little bit easier to use. Uh, Take a look at that, and we hope this will improve our our communication, that you're able to tell us uh, what what we can do to serve you. If you ever have a question, if you have a prayer request, if you need help from the men's ministry, whatever it is, this is an easy way to communicate with us. You can just fill it out and then drop it in the offering bucket on your way out uh, this morning. We hope that will improve our communication, and if you have you know, minor questions, you don't know who to ask, this is an easy way to do it. Well, the youth will leave tomorrow morning for a week of service at Camp Apennus. We're real excited about that opportunity. It will be the first time we've been together in quite some time. Uh, Please be praying for that. And if you would like to support that, it's not too late. You can mark your separate check, youth service trip, and drop it in the offering bucket on your way out. Some of you have asked about our graduation Sunday, which we've usually had by this point in the year. We've put that off uh, to, to align with the graduations, graduation ceremonies of Martinsdale and uh, Norwalk schools. So that will be coming at the end of June. I believe it's June 28th that we'll actually have graduation Sunday. Uh, it also al- allows Maddie, who's away at camp, to be back for that day. So anyway, just if you're wondering about that, we've not forgotten gotten our grads. We've just delayed it like they had to have their graduation delayed. Also stay tuned this week. Uh, we're going to be announcing some of the, the openings or reopenings of some of the things we're able to do. Uh, it's going to go slow, so be patient with us, but stay tuned for that. We're, we're basically going to go through kind of top to bottom. What can we safely do again other than just our, morning, our Sunday morning service? So we'll be evaluating that this week. 
Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Ephesians. You'll find the notes in the bulletin or online in the link on our website. Um, You can print those off. And this morning, we begin chapter 5 of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We begin our third walk as Paul moves through ethical implications of Christian living in light of the glorious realities in the first three chapters. We're just going to look at two verses this morning, and then we're going to sing a song in preparation for communion, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. But these are rich verses. I'd like to begin by reading them in a little word of prayer. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord God, um, we pray that you would give us grace to see and understand who you are. We cannot imitate you lest we first know you. We cannot model the love of Christ if we do not know the love of Christ. So open our eyes. Unstop our ears. Take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Let us see you and your glory and your goodness and your wonder. Big, bright, bold, beautiful. Let it consume and satisfy our hearts and Give us the grace then to reflect that glory and love in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. As many of you, I'm sure, remember, the book of Ephesians can neatly be divided in half. The first three chapters primarily focusing on what is doctrine, truth, what God has done. And then the second half of the epistle Paul begins to move into, in light of what God has done, what ought we to do? How ought we to live? The verbs go from indicatives to imperatives. You can think of it as orthodoxy and orthopraxy. However you want to view it, starting in chapter 4, Paul moves into how then we ought to live. And he organizes his instruction, develops his line of thought using the verb to walk five times. We saw the first walk, walking in a worthy manner in verse 1. In verse 17, we're to walk in a different way, no longer as the Gentiles. And now in our our text before us, walking in love. And and it's not as much three to five distinct categories. Rather, as Paul develops his thought, and you'll see this morning, it builds upon itself. These become markers for the next moving on step. It links back to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn back there briefly. If you remember in Ephesians 2, so many months ago, there were two great contrasts, two great before and afters. In the first 10 verses, our individual deadness. We were slaves to sin. We were held captive by the principles and the powers of this world. And one of the characteristics of our former individual deadness was... Look at verse 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We walked a certain way. We were the walking dead. Pardon the pun. But there was a dead walk that we were involved in. 
And on the other half of that contrast, which began in verse 4, but God, here's what God did. We are, we are told we're saved by grace. Look at verse 8. We're by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved from our good works or because of our good works, but we are absolutely saved into or unto good works. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God not only remedied our deadness and our guilt, but he also remedied our slavery. We were led a certain way, walking a certain way, and now, because of our salvation, because of our redemption, because we're fashioned anew, we can walk differently. That's an important distinction to get. We don't live different lives to become Christians, to merit God's favor. But all who have become Christians are remade and will walk differently. We'll see that clearly in the coming weeks. So let's look at our text over the two commands. The first command is in verse 1, to become imitators of God. That's your first blank. And I'll give you the second blank, by walking in love. Paul, Paul gives the instruction in two commands, become imitators of God by walking in love. And it's straightforward, and it's clear, and yet it is profound. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, what he literally says is to become. The notion is we may already be doing this, but do it more and more. Continue becoming. This is the same language he used at the end of chapter 4. It's part of what links this, here's your blank, with the previous command, links with the previous command. If you remember back at the end of chapter 4, be, be kind to one another is literally become kind. Same thing here. In fact, there's two connections which make it clear that even though he introduces the next walk category in 5.1, this is much more of a synthetic development of thought. Both in that we're still talking about becoming and also notice that the contrast, how we measure ourselves or what we reflect is God. In verse 32 of chapter 4, be kind to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then here we see, therefore become imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Again, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, become our models for imitation. So this links with the previous command. This isn't a new thought He's still moving forward. But it also links and develops the entire line of thought begun in chapter 4, verse 1. Um, that same word for therefore is what Paul uses to mark his moving on. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, he moves forward. Verse 17, now it's the same word in Greek. And so Paul's both marking a new section, and yet this is the development, the continuation, the culmination of what's come before. Because in a very real sense, isn't forgiving Speaking the truth, submitting your anger to righteousness, not stealing but being generous, is that not manners of imitating God? So we're in a new section, but it's just a new development of the sections that have come before. Okay, so it links with the previous command, and it further develops the entire line of thought. And the command then is to imitate God, to imitate God. It's interesting. Paul has told other churches elsewhere to imitate him. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
In 1 Thessalonians 6, he commends the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, the command is simply to imitate God. To imitate God. What do you see in God? Act like that. And again, this presupposes the knowledge of God. This is why you can't imitate God to become a Christian. You first need to know the living God. You need to come to know him and know yourself in light of him. And only then can you imitate what you see. And that's how we glorify God. We reflect his character to the world. People looking at you, looking at me, ought to learn something of who God is from our lives. But he doesn't just leave the command there. He tells us how. So the instruction then is to imitate God, to act out what we see in God. But we're to do it a certain way. We're to do it as beloved children. I think that further clarifies how this ought to be done. Now, Paul, in calling us beloved children, is is building upon truth he's already declared. Again, this is why chapter 5 isn't chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1. We are to imitate God as beloved children precisely because we are his beloved adopted children. The blank there, we are loved and adopted. Look at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So Paul has already declared that you and I, even though we were born children of wrath, we were born at enmity with God. We came into this world his enemies. We came into this world deserving his judgment. God in his grace and love has adopted us. And not only has he adopted us, but he loves us. We might be able to conceive of someone simply out of pity, adopting someone but not having strong feelings for them. Turn to chapter 2, and we see the reality of his great love. We saw the problem, our deadness, right, in chapter 2. Let's just read it again, rehearse it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. We used to be sons of disobedience, not sons of God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. That was our family tree and our parentage. But God, being rich in mercy... Why? Why was God rich in mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We've been adopted and loved with a great love. And and this is contrary to what you might expect. Oftentimes when we think of love, we think of loving things that are lovely. That's what the word lovely means. Deserving, warranting love. When I first met my wife... She was lovely to me. It was easy to love her. It seemed natural for my heart to go out towards her. As I've gotten to know my children, as they've come into this world, they are lovely in my sight. And I'm sure there are many things to you that you love that are lovely. Paul's point here is we were not lovely. 
We're to be in awe of God's love because he loved us in spite of who we are. He loved us in spite of our family tree and our heritage and our rebellion and our deadness and our warfare against him. And I think that's why Paul says it's the great love with which he loved us. You need to grasp this because we need to imitate God as those types of children. Children who've been adopted completely undeserving, completely unwarranted, yet in spite of the fact that we are sons of disobedience, children of wrath, dead slaves, warring with God, he loved us and adopted us with a great love. And now we're part of his family. As that, and in that position, we imitate God. And what that means then is Paul is bringing in a very familiar picture Far more, I think, familiar in the ancient world than in our day. And that is the children imitating the parents. Uh, I'm guessing most of you probably aren't in the same occupation that your parents were. Seems unlikely. But back in Jesus' day, virtually everyone would be uncommon not to learn the family trade. If, if your family was allotted land in the land division, so you learned to work the land. In fact, Jesus in the Gospels is referred to in Matthew as... Um, the carpenter's son, Matthew thirteen fifty five. is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? But also in Mark 6, 3, he's simply the carpenter. You notice that for Jesus can be spoken of as the carpenter's son. He's also the carpenter. Why? Because Jesus is assumed to have learned the family trade from Joseph. So when Paul tells us to imitate God as children, he's bringing to bear that entire picture. And if you think about it, certainly in many respects, our children do imitate us. The child's first steps because they see us walking around. Their first words because we talk to them. And even my children at, at times enjoy learning things from me as I go about. My son Abner and I were doing some work in the yard and he showing them how to use a drill, showing them how to use a screwdriver. Um, and that would have been even more so in the ancient world where you'd be learning the caring of the land, the family trade. And so this is an intimate family picture. It also explains the fact that our imitation is going to be poor. I mean, those drawings that you put up on the fridge, those aren't going to be hanging in museums. They're precious to the parents because the children are making them. They're trying to imitate what they see. God is pleased with our meager, weak endeavors to imitate him because we're in a family relationship. This should free us up. This is a father telling his children that he's freely brought into his home, adopted, loved, now learn from me. This is the basis for why in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They should be called sons of God, children of God. What's the implication? It's not justification through peacemaking, adoption through peacemaking. Rather, to the degree that you and I make peace, we evidence our new family tree. Your blank here is this. We should share in the family resemblance. We should share in the family resemblance. That's what children do. They look to mommy and daddy. They look to their parents, and they imitate what they see. That's what they ought to do. And now Paul is telling us, as beloved and adopted sons of daughters, get about doing that. Imitate what you see. This should also make this a delight and not simply some command. Oh, I guess I've got to imitate God. No child views it that way in the home. 
And if you understand God's love and his adoption, it will be the delight of your heart to get to imitate in some little way, to be like him in some little way. I want to be like daddy. I want to be like my father. I want to be less like my old family tree. And I want to be more like my father. We should share in the family resemblance. So that's, that's the first command. Imitate God. And not just imitate him by studying him. Imitate him from within, intimately as a child. And of course, I've got to pause here and say, you can't do this unless you are his beloved child. Which again, don't get the cart before the horse. These ethics are the outflow of salvation. They're not its cause. These, this new way of living is for beloved children. And as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we were saved by grace through faith. You can become a child of God. You can enter into the family of God. You can become an adopted, greatly loved child by turning from whatever else you're trusting and whatever else you're building your life upon, whatever else you're treasuring, whatever else you're worshiping, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in him, and you can become part of God's family. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who believed in his name, he, became, he gave the right or the power to become children of God. So even this morning, you can enter a new family or you can remain a child of wrath and a son of disobedience. Next week, we'll look at what happens to those children. But this week, we look to how sons and daughters, beloved children, should act. Become imitators of God more and more. This isn't something you're ever going to arrive at. You're never going to, well, I've done that. That's done. Checked off my list. You're becoming more and more. You're becoming more and more. Imitating your father. By the way, this also is good news for those of you who've had ungodly fathers, absent fathers, angry fathers, wicked fathers. Our, 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 our parents are imperfect at best, and some of them more so than others. And I talk to some people, they, they, they have hurts, pains from their relationship with their parents. You have a new father who does nothing but good to you, who does nothing but love you, and help you and grow you. He is entirely for you and not against you. Look to him and imitate this father. Even if you're not excited about imitating your earthly parents, here's a father worth imitating. Become imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved himself and gave himself up for us. Now, your blank for point two is by walking in love. I don't think Paul is giving a second separate command. I think rather he is developing or clarifying. Here's your blank. The second command clarifies the first. Um, he, he's, what areas of God to imitate? I think it's helpful because there's some areas of God you and I ought not to imitate. God pours out his wrath. We ought not to. We're supposed to give it over to him. God gives life and takes it away. That's not an area of God's rule you probably shouldn't be imitating. Um, and so we get some clarification on what aspect of God's character and personhood we are to imitate. And so as beloved children, imitate God by walking in love. And walk in love. Or also walking in love. The second command clarifies the first now, the command here, walk, we've said this before, is your daily conduct. 
Before the automobile, most people walked about. And so the idea is as you go through your day, as you walk about, as you take care of your business and your um, endeavors and your work, conduct yourself in your walk this way. And walking in love, then your blank is conduct your daily life in the sphere of love. It's another way, that's particularly the area of God you are to imitate. And if I'm right that this further clarifies the first command, um, then this is actually a strong um, implication of the deity of Christ. We are to imitate God by imitating Christ, by loving as he loved. Implication, Christ is God. Christ is a suitable object of imitation if you want to imitate God. Walk in love. Walk in the sphere of love as Christ loved us. And then, not just leaving it there, because remember, Paul's had a lot to say about the love of Christ. Remember the great prayer at the end of chapter 3? That we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's going to zero it down even further. So you're to imitate God, more specifically, imitate Christ and his love, and then specifically, we're going to look at Christ's sacrificial giving up of himself, love. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the second command clarifies the first. Walking in love, then, is your daily conduct. This is the third walk we've been given, the first way to think of. And it's not like Mondays you walk one way and Tuesdays you walk another way. These are all ways of describing the Christian daily conduct. The first walk, chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a worthy or fitting manner of your calling. And we studied that over a number of weeks. In fact, that's just when we stopped meeting um, first in person from, on Sunday mornings. And we went through that walk and we saw that it was primarily focused on corporate unity and corporate maturity. Walking in a worthy manner meant walking as a unified church and walking as a growing and maturing church. And then a few weeks ago, Pastor Daniel introduced the second walk and it's the different walk or the new walk. Verse 17, walking no longer as the Gentiles. So one way to think about your daily life and conduct is to be thinking, and these should be new thoughts. As you go about your day, you should be thinking about walking in a worthy way that maintains the unity of the body. Walking and conducting yourself in a worthy way that promotes the growth of the body. Also now walking in a different way, not like the Gentiles who do not know God. Walking in newness. In fact, this imitation, if you look at uh, verse 20 of chapter 4, as Paul describes the new walk. Look at this. That's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then look at this. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Who created it? God did. So even as you imitate God, All you're doing is making use of, utilizing the grace God has given. God has already fashioned you anew. He's already created, fashioned this new man. And the new man is created, oh look, in the likeness of God. That's how you imitate God. You walk in newness. So again, these... 
develop thoughts here, but they're not new thoughts. It's another way of saying what he said before. It's a marker that we're moving on to a new section, but this is one progressive life and living. Not five different walks, but five different ways of looking at the same conduct in life. And now here, another way of thinking about that is walking in love. And the fact that we're walking in love is measured by something is also important because our culture loves love. It's the one thing there's not enough of, one of our prophets and sages has said. And yet our culture is very confused about what love is. Right? Nearly all types of activity is justified under the clause and heading of love. And so Paul doesn't simply tell us to walk in love. There are a lot of liberal churches and Christians who think they're doing just that. But we're to walk in love, measuring our standard of love, not on our culture, not on our hearts and what seems true to us, but on the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our love is to imitate as well. Our love has a standard by which you can measure it. Interestingly enough, I'm stealing some thunder from next week, but... What's put directly in contrast to walking in love? All manner of sexual sins and activity. Isn't that interesting? Walk in love, look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Do you see how these are completely at odds? And how much sexual morality is justified because we were in love. No, you weren't. It may be another word starting with L that was active. However, back to here, not next week. So here, Christ loved us. Walk in love as Christ loved us. We get a standard. Just as we are told to forgive as God forgave us in Christ in verse 32. So here, our love has a standard. And that standard, Christ's love for us, serves as both the model and cause. The model and cause cause of our love modeled because we are to love as he loved cause because his love took the initiative we've already seen that first john 4 19 spells this out clearly we love because he first loved us so love just as christ loved you and i he gave us the model he took the initiative and we're able to love because we have something to imitate because his love is poured out in our hearts Point D, how did Christ specifically love us? Well, there are many ways he loved us, right? I mean, he put up with the disciples for three years. That was an act of love. Peter always putting his foot in his mouth. He loved us by living among us and sharing in our sufferings. He loved us by choosing us in eternity past. He loved us by sending his spirit to be with us. We could speak of many, many ways that Christ has loved us. And yet again, it gets narrowed down further here. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The word for gave himself up could also be translated handed over, turned over. And this is looking at the surrender of Christ's life himself on our behalf. And what we're really looking at here then is the cross. This is a pretty high standard of love. Love, walk in daily love as Christ loved us and died for us. That's that's some love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a self-giving love. 
It's a love that suffers injury and mistreatment, a love that suffers long and endures long. It's not a love emoji on a text. This is crucifixion. Love that way. Which fits perfectly with Christ's call to pick up your cross, follow him. So a couple things I want to point out here. He gave himself up for us. One, Christ chose to die. I'm sure this isn't news for people in this room, but I think it's always worth reiterating when we're looking at the cross. The cross was not a great accident. The cross was not plan B. And now, oh, what's God going to do? They've chosen to crucify his son. Well, I guess he'll have to. No, Jesus ultimately is sovereign over the crucifixion. We saw that in our study through Luke. The sinful men did what they sinfully did to their shame and their ignominy, yet they did nothing other than what God had planned. Christ is explicit in John's gospel. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Here we see that truth as well. Christ gave himself up for us. Why did he die? Because he chose to die. He intended to die. Which makes his life that much more remarkable. He came to earth with the express purpose of dying for us in love for us. Now, yes, Christ died in obedience to the Father. And if you press to me, his highest ultimate value is pleasing the Father, his love for his Father. He, he went to the cross above all other reasons for that. That does not take an iota away from the great deep truth that he died also in his love for us. And here we see the love of Christ for us, his sacrifice for us. He died in our place, there's your blank, and for our benefit. He took the initiative. He voluntarily gave his life. It was not taken from him. This also tells us something about love. Love that way. Take the initiative. Volunteer to give up your rights. Volunteer to enter suffering. Volunteer to die for others. In in our place and for our benefit. That's what's in the phrase, for us. And again, now we're looking at, again, the heart of the gospel. Christ died as a substitute. He died for us. We deserved to die. We were children of wrath, were we not? Who got the wrath? Not us. The sinless Son of God received God's wrath on our behalf. He died in our place and for our benefit. We're to love like that. You're not going to be able to atone for anyone but you can receive the punishment for others. You can receive the suffering in the place of others. You can take that initiative and you can model this as well. Love like that. This gets way beyond happy feelings, good vibes. Love like this. Then he goes on to employ um, sacrificial language. Christ gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And again, I want to pause here again because there can be some confusion. I doubt very much from our body, but in Christendom in general, over the purpose of Christ's death. I've just said he died a substitutionary death. He died to absorb wrath. Why do I say that? Well, because of texts like this because of their tie-in to the sacrificial system. That language, a fragrant offering 
and sacrifice to God. It occurs over 388 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament linked to the sacrificial system. This is familiar language for anyone who knows her Old Testament. There's no ambiguity. We aren't used to sacrifices. We don't normally offer sacrifices. But for Paul, a Pharisee, any of the Jewish members of the body, anyone who'd read and was familiar with the Old Testament would pick up exactly on what he's saying. Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice to God. Why did you offer sacrifices to God? To atone for sin, to make up for wrongs, as offerings of thanksgiving. There were a number of them. Here it's clear, through what Paul said earlier in the epistle, redemption through his blood. Chapter 1, verse 7. In his body, removing the curse of the law. In chapter 2, verse 13. And I, wanna, I want to make three points here about Christ's sacrifice and then one point about our response with what time I have left. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First, and if you turn to Hebrews 9, we're going to look at three passages in Hebrews sequentially. Hebrews has the, the single longest and most focused exposition of Christ's sacrifice in Levitical terms in the language of the Old Testament. And I want to drive these points home. I want to be no doubt. First point, Christ, and this may seem obvious in the grammar, this is not obvious to some in the church, Christ's sacrifice was presented to God. Not the devil, not to sin. Christ didn't present his sacrifice to us to show us how much he cared. Christ died as a sacrifice to whom? To God. Christ's sacrifice was presented to God. Christ's sacrifice dealt with God's wrath, God's indignation. He wasn't paying off the devil. He wasn't paying off sin in sort of the abstract. He was making a payment to his father. He was a sacrifice to his father. And so, for good reason, I think we hold that substitutionary atonement is central to the understanding of the cross and Christ's death. Christ's sacrifice was presented to God. Let me, let me show you how the book of Hebrews reinforces this point. Chapter 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of the creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Understand, God required a sacrifice be made to him before he could overlook, before he could pardon, before he could not punish our sin. Our adoption as beloved children required this sacrifice. So we're to love as God loved us and invited us into his family as children. We're also to love as Christ loved us and died a sacrificial death that we might become beloved children. Christ's sacrifice was presented 
to God. Presented to God. That language, by the way, of a fragrant offering and, and sacrifice speaks not just to the sacrifice itself, but the, the quality, the worthy manner in which it was given. In the Old Testament, we have examples of the sacrificial system being followed, but from insincere hearts and motives, and God is displeased. That, that famous passage in Amos spells this out. Amos 5.21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Your peace offerings and your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So Jesus' sacrifice uh, was presented to God, and that language of the aroma and the fragrance moves on to make my next point. Christ's sacrifice was acceptable to God. Christ's sacrifice was not one of those insincere, hypocritical, unworthy sacrifices like we just heard of in Amos. It was accepted. It was given in the right manner and from the right heart. In love, he gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So not only was Christ's sacrifice presented to God, it was acceptable to God. This is the basis of our forgiveness. His life was sufficient. His suffering was sufficient to provide a salvation for us. Paul Paul can speak of it this way in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Stay Stay in Hebrews. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. All of God's wrath, all of God's anger was satisfied. God was accepted with this sacrifice. It was enough. It is sufficient Christ's sacrifice was acceptable. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Let's reinforce this point. And some of the same language showing up in Ephesians shows up here. Um, Verse 10, Hebrews 10, 10. And by that will we have been, okay, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So here we're talking about the offering of Jesus. Now in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because it's finished. No more sacrifices. It is finished waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool by his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's sacrifice was acceptable to God. And third, Christ's sacrifice was pleasing to God. Here's the other distinction I want to make. It's not as though this awful death had to be done And the father accepted it sort of begrudgingly. The father delighted in his son displaying his saviorness. Christ has always been a savior. He he shows himself to be one at the cross. The father was pleased. It was a 
look at the language, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, there is one real sense in which the Father abhorred the injustice of the cross. The Father was angry at the injustice of the cross. Pilate and those men who are not in Christ will suffer the wrath of God for crucifying the Son of God. And yet, from another vantage point, as God looks at the crucifixion of his Son and the glory it brings and the ransom is paid for all these sons and daughters to come in and be part of his family, he is pleased. It's a pleasing aroma. For his son to willingly, taking the initiative, lay down his life for his people, for his father. The father is pleased. And the reason I want to point this out to you is if God is pleased at the father, the son's sacrifice, he is also pleased at ours. That same pleasure, that same fragrant aroma can go up when we imitate this type of love. Christ's sacrifice was pleasing to God. Turn turn finally to... uh, to Philippians, to Philippians. Um, where the same logic is employed. Christ's sacrifice was presented to God, it was acceptable to God, it was pleasing to God. And that's important to understand because we're called to love in that way. We're called to love in that way. Paul will make the argument backwards here. First, he's going to tell us what to do. Then he's going to give us the model or standard by which we're to measure it. It's the same rationale here. And you'll see God's pleasure in his son's humiliation and death. Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy which I would respond, and I, and I think there is. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he brings in the model and example of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, but my rights. He let go of his rights. He didn't hold on to them. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, which is too nice a word, taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, so that's bad enough. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Does that sacrifice please the Father? You bet it does. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' sacrifice was presented to God. It was acceptable to God. It was pleasing to God. It was a fragrant offering and sacrifice, a pleasing aroma. So here's the point for us then. That means then that our giving up of self should be as well. What I mean is our sacrificial love, our giving up of ourselves, our willingness to die for others. It should be done rightly offered up to God. Not up to public opinion and virtue signaling, but God. Make your sacrifices to God. 
on behalf of others. Jesus died for us, offering himself as a sacrifice to God. That also then means that our sacrifices will equally be acceptable to God. Not to atone for others, but it will, he will receive them and he will work good through them. And our sacrifices and giving up a self will also be pleasing to God. I mean, just turn over a little bit in, in Ephesians to chapter 5. This is the same exact instruction Paul specifically gives to husbands, is it not? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is. Husbands, die if need be for your wives. And fundamentally, the picture of dying is not going out and defending them fundamentally. I, I think there's a responsibility to do that. But here, it's to wash and sanctify them with the word. Right? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word. We'll get there in a few weeks or months. Not years, but we'll get there. Our giving up a self has a model. It's Christ giving up a self. And when it's hard to take the initiative, when it's hard to suffer, when it's hard to give up your rights and turn the other cheek, when it's hard to love that way, remember, you're, you're doing it to God. It's what he tells the slaves later on. You serve, not as man-pleasers, but unto God. It's acceptable by God. God will work good through it, and it's pleasing to God. That's why Paul can say in Romans 12, 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul can speak of his ministry as an apostle in Romans 15 in this way. On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So he's speaking about his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. Um, in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is offering up sacrifices to God by which he means him pouring out his life, him dying on behalf of the Gentiles. You can read 1 Corinthians 12. Beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, imprisoned. He gave up of himself so that he could offer up a sacrifice of the Gentiles to God. And again and again, we see that. He speaks of their gift of money to him in Philippians as a sacrifice. Listen to this, Philippians 4.18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So they went without. They sacrificed. They gave of themselves, this time in the form of money. And Paul says, in so much as they did it for God's glory, so much as they did it to please him, even though they're doing it on behalf of Paul, it's a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice. That is how we're called to live. Imitate God. Specifically, imitate God as you look to Christ. Specifically, imitate God as you look to Christ and his sacrificial death, knowing how God was pleased, how God accepted it, and what God accomplished through Christ's love and sacrifice in that way. He will do good through your and my loving and sacrificing. It's very different than what the world views love as. This is the way we are to walk. We can only do that because we have been adopted, because we have been loved first. It's the only hope we have to carry this out, is 
We see it in him. We've been brought near by him. Our fear of judgment is taken away. He forgives us, and now we can live boldly and courageously. 